quiet quitting, the great resignation, the work from home revolution, employment as we know it is changing. People all over the world want to find meaning and purpose in what they do for a living, not just a paycheck. Best-selling author Bruce Filer has written extensively about life transitions and well before the pandemic, he began to sense a big transition in the way we approach work. He says so much human potential has been squandered by the idea that there is one dream job and you have to keep climbing to get it by collecting work stories from people of all backgrounds. He shows the way to throw out the idea of a career and begin writing your own scripts. His uh, book is called The Search, Discovering Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And Bruce Feiler joins me now. Hi there. Hi there. How are you doing? Thank you for inviting me in that generous introduction. Yeah, great to talk to you. And the book's been a long time coming, six years, I think. What, what were the first signs you were seeing that a big change in the workplace was happening? Well, this goes back about six years, at you, as you said, when I I personally had kind of what I think of now as the classic linear life. Like I figured out what I wanted to do early in my life. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married and had children. Yeah. But then in my 40s, I was just walloped by life. First, I got cancer uh, as a, a father of identical twin newborns. I had financial troubles and my father uh, tried to got Parkinson's and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. Oh, and gosh. even though I'm exactly. And even though I'm a writer, I was, I didn't know how to tell this story, frankly, and didn't, didn't want to either. And, and when I did, what I learned is that everybody has moments in their lives when they get beat up um, by life and feel like, you know, their life is off course or off track and off kilter in some way. And that's what led to this work that I do now. And for six years, as you said, I've been traveling around collecting hundreds of life stories of people of all ages and all walks of life, trying to figure out how they navigate life transitions. And so I, I wrote a book, of, my first book on this was called Life is in the Transitions. And it came out, as you mentioned, in the middle of the pandemic when <laughs> the entire planet was in a life transition yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it became going. very clear to me that work was going to be the next domino to fall because work from anywhere and what we later came to think of as uh, the, the great resignation and the great relocation that people were sort of shifting their views of work. And so I thought, you know what, let me go out again, talk to people and see if I can identify some clues that can help all of us trying to figure out um, how to get the work life that we want. Yeah. To, to give us an idea of your background, you grew up in the American South, you worked with a family business, but I'm, I'm guessing at some point your expectations about work uh, diverged from your families. Yeah, I think I definitely grew up in a in a, a family that had a family business. I was personally never deeply involved. I I actually left and and, and moved to um, moved to the Pacific. Actually, moved to Japan and huh. started teaching junior high school. And uh, I sold my first book. It doesn't really happen this way at twenty four. Now thirty five years ago, and I've never held a job since. So my life has been about traveling around the world, entering different cultures, leaving and and writing about them and. And so the last few years, it's been this culture of work. And you asked about the change. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of my life, I went back and forth to the Middle East, writing books and making television about religion and how we process kind of our changing sense of spirituality and meaning. And the most influential story of work ever told was actually the Garden of Eden, because when Adam and Eve get kicked out, 
their punishment is work, right? The ancient Greek word for work <laughs> is slavery. The ancient Latin word for work, you know, for office means, you know, doing a miserable activity. I mean, like on and on. For most of human history, we have been told work is supposed to be unpleasant, right? And in an odd kind of way, you know, Jesse, I've got to say it's that it's the millennials in an odd way that, that change this. You know, in these mm. work conversations, I would say to people, you know, what's the most important value of work you learned from your parents? And three quarters of people said the value of hard work, like people still want to work hard. But when I asked the downsides, you know what they said? Overwork followed by strain on the family, followed by unhappiness. And that's the big change. People want to work hard, but they are no longer prepared to be miserable, mm. to work too hard, to give up being with their families, and you know, uh, to, to give up being happy or finding meaning. And the problem that we've had in work is that no one's told us how to find meaning. Like, how do you figure out what it is you want to do when your whole life you've been on what I call the should train? You should do this, right? Or you should do that, right? Or you, you know, should pick a career and stick with it, or you should decide early. We got to get off the should train and we got to get on the want train and we don't really know how to do that. And that's what I've tried to do in the search. Can you talk to us about the concept of a ghost job? Yeah. So there's basically, the book, as you know, is built around what I call three lies and a truth about work. So the first lie is that you have a career. You don't have a career. That's an artificial idea that was invented 100 years ago. <laughs> you can change your jobs whenever you want for something as simple as you want to. And just for the record, half the people who change jobs change occupations. The second lie is that you have a path. There is no path. It's a wandering, you know, two steps forward, one step back. When there is no path, there's no penalty to get off the path. Each of us will go through what I call a work quake 20 times in our lives, every two and a half years when we have to rethink what we want to do. And the third lie is that you have a job because most people don't have one job anymore. They have multiple jobs. We might have a main job, though, frankly, only half of us even have one of those anymore. A side job. We know what that is. There's a, what I call a hope job. 89% of us have a job that we hope leads to something else, mm -hmm. right? You know, like selling pickles at the farmer's market or writing a screenplay or starting a podcast, right? And then 93% of us have what I call a ghost job. And a ghost job is essentially an invisible time suck <laughs> that feels like a job, right? Battling self-doubt or imposter syndrome or battling discrimination or not having financial literacy because maybe you grew up in a family where you didn't learn how to save money or invest money. And these jobs, when you talk to people, like they take an average of like 10 hours a week that we're not being productive. We are battling our internal demons, our internal ghosts. And the reason I think this is important is that What's non-negotiable anymore is that we want meaning from our work. So maybe we do our main job because we need the benefits or the salary, and maybe we do our side job because it gives us meaning. Or maybe we want to venture out on our own and do something entrepreneurial, and we do something on the side to make some money. So we sort of, I don't know, arbitrage, we sort of divide our time because everybody wants to work for meaning. Um, and if we can't get it in one thing, we want to try to get it in something else. The ghost job is a sort of debit on that, which means we have to work harder and other things to make sure that we're fully getting the uh, the well-being that we're looking for. Yeah, and, you, and you're using job in a different way there. Uh, you, uh, I mean, what is your definition of job? Because it's different to how most people understand it. 
Yeah, which, which is a, a great point because I'm using it the way it was always used until about 100 years ago, right? If you go back, you know, 500 years, the word job was sort of a t and in, still the second definition in most dictionaries. It's like something that you do, a task, a responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's if you're if you're a parent, like okay, it's 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 my job to drive my 12 year old <laughs> to uh, travel soccer, right? Yeah. As we as we call it, country, right? Or uh, my, my job is to be on the co op board in my building, right? Or my job is you know to to uh, do this in my neighborhood. So it's a task and the word job to mean only one job is an accident of history that really entered the language about 150 years ago when we moved from sort of you know the rural areas to the industrial economy and we had a kind of nine to five job if you go back in the agricultural world that most of human history was in most people they farmed and they made their candles right and they educated their young and took care of the old and everybody did everything and we kind of turn to this limiting definition. And I think that what's happening in the world today where we're 24 seven and technology and, and this kind of meaning moment that I'm talking about is I think the job, we need to rethink how it is because for a lot of people like managing their social media is their job, right? I mean, they may do it at night, um, being with a child, you know, like parenting is a job for a lot of people now. And the, the, the sort of distinction between only men go to work and women stay at home, we're not there anymore, thank God. And as a result, we have to rethink a lot of the expectations we have around work. Yeah. And so what is the value of identifying these things as jobs? Is it so that we're realistic about what's taking our time and taking our energy? Yeah, because I think that the point is the job is not what matters. Is if you think about it as work, and these are different sort of subsets of work, you can get to, say, the what I call the one truth about work, right? We talked about the three lies. What is the one truth? Only you get to write the story of your work life. Okay, you have a work story, you have a definition of success, and a definition of meaning, which is why the second half of my book is what you alluded to at the outset of this conversation. It's what I call a meaning audit, right? It's asking yourself a series of questions, which is how can I get work right now that brings me meaning today? Not when I'm 21, if I'm 41, or not at when I'm 51, if I'm 31, right now. So you ask yourself, if this is the point about don't just climb, <laughs> just reach for the next thing, dig, do this kind of what I call personal archaeology, where you figure it out, like, I'll just give you a simple example. One of the 21 questions is, you know, I'm, I'm in a moment in my life when blank. Okay, maybe I'm in a moment in my life when I need to make money because I'm paying off my student debt. Yeah. Or in my case, I dropped two children to college last week, right? Or I'm in a moment when I... Um, uh, I want to give back, right? Maybe I want to fight climate change right now, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I want to run for political office, or maybe I've been doing the same thing for 15 years and I'm tired of working for the boss and now I want to do something for myself. So I'm at a moment in my life when um, I'm going to start something new and maybe give up that stability because I can take more risk right now. And the point is when 20 times in your life you have a workquake, you ask yourself these things repeatedly to make sure you're doing a check Am I doing what I'm wanting doing right now? Over and over, Jesse, in these conversations, one of the hardest things for people to do is to not chase someone else's expectations, but chase your own. Not what your parents wanted you to do, right? Not when your religion told you you should do, not what your community expected because you were this or that. It's what do you want to do because how you define meaning might be different than the person you live with, might be different from me, and you want to make sure that you are sitting down and saying, 
what is it that I want would make me happy, and then taking steps to make that come true. I'm talking to best-selling author Bruce Feiler. His book is called The Search, Discovering Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And there are some great case studies in there. Um, everyone has what you call the unright decision, the one your friends disagree with, but you do it anyway. Um, could you tell us about that and, and perhaps the woman working at the CIA? Yeah, I, I, I somehow knew you were going to say that because I love this story. Yeah. It's a woman. She's an Asian-American. She grew up in the you know, American Northwest first-generation Korean family, her father gave her a science textbook for her 16th birthday. Message clear. You are expected to <laughs> do this for your work. And she was like, I, I'm interested in my country. and I'm interested in, you know, and in, in, in contributing to the world. And so she goes as far from the Northwest as she can to Washington, D.C. to go to college. And as she said to me, she chose the name brand. She goes to work for the CIA. And she said she thought her father would not like this because she said immigrants often have a negative opinion of the CIA. Mm. Um, and she's put on the Soviet desk, right? Which, you know, you can imagine the height of the Cold War, like this was the you know, plum job in Washington, D.C. Yeah. She doesn't like it. And she says, you know, I think there's something else I can do. I've always been very organized. and I'm very disciplined and I'm very structured and conscientious. So she walks away from the Soviet desk to do what? To run payroll. I mean, like the least sexy job, <laughs> um, you know, in, 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 in the United States, we call our nation's capital. What happens? She goes to run HR. She gets promoted to the assistant of this and the assistant of that. And literally, she ends up with the highest civilian job in the CIA. And during a moment of political turmoil, she runs the entire CIA, uh, the <laughs> Uh, the first Asian American to do that. And I have another story about a young man, a man named Tim Pierpont, who grew up adopted uh, in, the, in the Northeast, always loved working with his hands. And but that was not acceptable where he grew up. Huge pressure on him. So he, so he goes to work at a, for a bank doing commercial real estate until 22 years later. Uh, he his neighbor, the boss says, you don't look very good. The neighbor goes home a year later. He dies from cancer. And Tim Pierpont goes to a Starbucks, makes a list of all the things he would rather be doing than what he's doing now. He don't want to die at his desk like the guy next to him. And when he was younger, he liked working with his hands. He started a painting company uh, you know, in college to make some extra money. He said, I'd like to be outside. I'd like to be working with my hands. I'd like to be working um, with uh, making my community better. He quits and he opens a painting company. And the kicker to the story, Jesse, is... Later in his life, he meets his birth mother. It turns out that she was an artist and he never knew in his life that this is who he was. Oh. But the point is, he had to disappoint his family. He said, I was the I was in a I was in a neighborhood full of Teslas and I was the only one with a van with you know my name on the side of it. Mm. Right. Because he disappointed his neighbors. Uh, Maroy Park, the CIA uh, head, she disappointed her colleagues. People disappoint their spouses even their own parents or expectations. Every one of these stories have what I call the unright choice that's right for that person and becomes the right story. And then by doing this, what I call the abnorm is becoming the norm, right? The abnormal story is, not, is now becoming the normal story. And that's what happens when each person decides, I'm not going to chase someone else's dream. I'm going to chase my own. So what does success look like? What is success? 
I think that's a great question. And I think that's the heart of it. And it's actually the thing that most surprised me. I kind of went in looking for work and realized um, that I had stumbled upon a new definition of success. So let's go with three things. Success is not climbing. Success is digging. The story is not higher floor, bigger office, better view, greater salary, more benefits. It's digging. It's what do I want right now? It might be that. Or it might be making the planet better, or it might be self-expression, or it might be independence and being an entrepreneur or starting a nonprofit. Success is not climbing. Success is digging. The second is success is not uh, collective, is individual, it's collective. Person after person, they said, success is not just about me. It's what's best for my family. It's what's best for my community. Uh, and the final is success is not status. Success is story. I'll tell you a story I've never told publicly because it just happened a few hours ago. I got an email this morning from the city manager of a small city in California because there's a man named Ken Tang who is profiled in the search. Ken Tang was born in Vietnam. His mother um, uh, worked in a job that was would not have been welcome when the Americans lost the war um, and um, the uh, communist regime took over. So his family escaped on the next to last helicopter to get out. He was resettled. He was actually on a, on a ship in the South China Sea for a month, resettled ultimately, and his mother was taking care of his blind father, and he had to supervise his young children with their homework. He became a school teacher, and for three decades, he was his life story was, this is what gives me meaning, until in his 50s, he realized he wanted to change, and he ran for the local school board, and his students came and said, you told us to chase our dreams. And now this is your dream. We want to help you. And they canvassed, went door to door, making him the first Vietnamese American ever elected to the school board in this town in California. And the city tonight is hosting a party in his honor because they were so touched that he appeared in my book and they reached out to me today. So oh, that is a story. That's not climbing, that's digging, right? That's not living the Asian American dream as we normally think of it, right? Be a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist. It's That's not individual. It's collective, making the community better. And success is not status. It's story. That's how the definition of success is changing. And the question is, what's your definition and how can you go out and get it? I get the sense that, because um, I think for a lot of people, finding meaning is equated with um, finding your passion, following your passion. But I get the sense from you yeah. that those are two distinct things, and it's worth knowing the difference. I love this question. First of all, let's talk about the difference between happiness and meaning, because it's the first thing that matters, right? So happiness is fleeting. Happiness is an emotion. It's a feeling, okay? Happiness is today, and it could be different tomorrow. Animals can be happy. But animals can't have meaning. Only humans can because humans stitch together past, present, and future. Meaning is how you make identity even when you're unhappy, when you have a medical diagnosis, when there's when there's you know a natural disaster, when there's a pandemic and your path has been upset or dislodged, how you adjust can be meaningful, even if it's not always happy. So that's an important distinction, the first. And the second, yes, chase your passion is the worst advice you can get. Because mm -hmm. when I ask people, and, and apologies if you hear a um, fire truck passing me here in Brooklyn as we're having this conversation, but it's real life here. Um, the problem with chase your passion is when I ask people, did you, I think, I think this is the peak of the siren. Um, we can't, We can't hear it, so you're all good. When, 
Great. When I ask people, did you follow your passion, discover your passion, or make your passion, only one in 10 said they followed your passion, followed their passion. Why? Because passions change, because circumstances evolve, because you can't know at 20 what you're going to know at 30 or 40. I actually did a podcast earlier today called AI and the Future of Work. Who among us even three years ago believed that AI was going to have as much transformative ability on all of our lives as it is? You cannot know what's coming ahead. So if anything, you're, it's, it's a much better piece of advice to focus on what you want to do now and do that to the best of your ability because you're going to have a family perhaps. You will become an empty nester as I have just done. You know, the circumstances will change, your, your views and your passions will evolve and sometimes you have to say, you know what, now is not the right time to chase my passion because I, I, I got to put a new roof on the house or I got to move my my parents into assisted living. And my own <laughs> needs are not primary right now. But when the changes every two, three years, you can say I can make one choice today and a different one at a different time. So if you can follow your passion, great. But if not, don't worry, you're going to have many chances to revisit it and you can follow a new passion that you haven't even learned yet. Be fascinated to hear if you gave your twin daughters any advice when you dropped them off at university about um, taking this next step, which is traditionally intended to finish with a job of some kind. Yeah, um, the answer is yes. <laughs> Have we met? I gave them advice every day for months. <laughs> but um, uh, I'll tell you a couple of things that I said. Number one, don't listen to me. Um, don't do it because you think I want you to do it. Um, because I, it was some of the most painful things I heard of like, I was 40 until I realized I was chasing my parents' dream and my, my own. So I'm here to support you. I'm here to help you in any way that I can or answer your questions. But don't do something if you think that I or we, you know, your parents want you to do. That was advice number one. Mm -hmm. Advice number two, um, dig deep into what you're interested in now. I, I don't know if you have kids this age, or if if you if Mine you're familiar with younger, them, I yeah, you, but twelve is twelve is my oldest of four. Uh, okay, well enjoy enjoy that while 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 you got it, um, um, and they're probably still listening to you. You know, like uh, <laughs> I, perhaps I should remind you that my eighteen year old daughters are not particularly interested in advice from me. Um, but but anyway, so I dropped my both of my I have identical girls, as I said, and they they both went to the same school, and um, there are these parent Facebook groups, which are like you know just this side of the, you know, Dante's third level of hell. And these very, you know, sort of, I don't know, helicoptery, acquisitive, yeah. nervous, now my kids are not, they post all these things. And someone posted over the weekend, my child wants to um, major, as we call it in this country, my child wants to major in like government economics and ethics. And this is the least employable major I can possibly imagine. How can I possibly stop my child from doing this? Yeah. And I, it was all I could do to restrain myself to actually not put a link to the search in the answer. But it was like, first of all, it's not your decision. <laughs> Second of all, you don't know what's employable, nor does anybody else. Um, and third, it can change over time. And then the last thing I have to say, this is a good day to ask me this question because my children signed up for classes this afternoon and they were giving a report on what happened and both of them didn't get one of their first choice classes and what everybody around them had said was you know write the professor and then they both got emails just a few minutes ago saying that they would be permitted I mean, excuse me admitted to the class and 
I thought for months about the last thing I wanted to tell my children before I dropped them off at school, mm. quite literally seven days ago at this hour. And what I said to them was, don't wait for it to come to you. Go out and get it. It's not going to come to you. You have to reach out to it. Like, this is your dream. Go out and make it come true. And I think that really is the message about work. You can't wait for the dream job, for the job that will give you meaning, for the job you've secretly longed for, for, for months or years or decades to come to you. It's not going to come to you. You've got to go out and get it. You have to take the agency. You have to take control over your life. Do the digging. Decide what it is, the job that you want. Do an analysis. Is this, am I ready to do this now? Or do I have to take some steps intermediately and maybe do it in two years? But don't wait for it to come to you. Go out and get it. You can write a story of work in your life that brings you the happiness you crave, the meaning you deserve, and the success you can get on your own terms. That's beautiful. And they replied, Dad. Exactly. <laughs> Roll your eyes. <laughs> you said, do you know Believe. how much anyone Stop else on earth crying. would pay for this advice from me, this personalized advice? Uh, that's good. Uh, they're lucky to have you. Know, you. <laughs> in fact, I, I wrote a thing a couple years ago, a couple years ago about you. You go from da to dada to daddy to dad to dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. That's You're still a- in there. You probably got some that are still dad. You probably got some that are still daddying you. You're lucky. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know it's coming. <laughs> Well done on the book. It's called The Search, <laughs> Discovering Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And I've been speaking to Bruce Filer. Thanks, Bruce, and good luck. My pleasure. Happy travels. Go get it, everybody.